one of our original ideas was we want to go into areas that are not interesting enough yet for the big companies. But as we grow them two to three years from now, we will make them interesting because they're not meaningful enough for big companies. Hi, I am Sophie Vaux, and this is the Rise and Play podcast. In the show, I sit down with influential thought leaders of the gaming industry to deconstruct how they create the best team and company cultures in order to create the best games. Every episode brings actionable insight to improve your leadership, self-awareness, and emotional management skills. Because becoming a better leader starts with becoming a better human. So, are you ready to unlock your full potential in life and business? Let's begin. Don't just see the future, know the future with today's sponsor, Sourceten. They make it easy to identify how your audiences and players actually play and what keeps them coming back for more. In a previous life, I used Sourceten product navigator for a game in soft launch and discovered that my audience was more complex than I thought. Instead of one homogeneous group, I was able to identify two unique persona, take a series of calculated risks in our game design, and strike a balance between the two groups. Our approach shifted from making a game for everyone to creating a personal experience for our most valuable players. And we were able to put our resources and time to good use and launch our game with a high level of confidence in its success. Visit go.sourcen.io slash riseandplay, that's S-O-L-S-T-E-N, for a demo and receive 30% off your first Sourcen engagement crafted to your studio's needs. Learn why EA, Supercell, Wooga, and more use Sourcen to create the best human-centric gaming experiences possible. So hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Rise and Play today. And I'm super excited of my guest today, Michael Martinez. We've been in touch through the industry as well, and we have something going on called the LinkedIn indirect communication. So I've been following a lot the posts, the success, also the learning you've been sharing. And as we connected, something I was really interested about was about the culture of teams. And it's a debate I'm having these days as well with my own studio, distributed teams and how can they perform because the history of your company, and we'll talk about it in a moment actually doing quite well with your products and we get into that and that's what we are talking about today. So before we start, Michael, would you mind introducing yourself and also what you've done in the gaming industry, you know, your previous companies before you created Heavencraft? Great. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to talk. So I'm Michael Martinez, co-founder and CEO of Funcraft, which is almost four years old. I've been in the games industry for well over a decade now. I started in San Francisco as a product manager on Zynga before IPO, before Farmville existed. And that's where I actually met my co-founder, Jason McGurk. We worked together uh, on a pod there on Zynga Poker. Jason and I left Zynga in 2012 and we started Juicebox Games, which was making mobile RPGs and CCGs. We made two games there. The first one worked out really well. And then the second one did not. And we shut down our company. Then I went to Electronic Arts and was the general manager of a studio there in Redwood City. We grew that from a 25 to an 80 person studio making Command and Conquer Rivals. And 
decided over long conversations with Jason that we were ready to get back together and start something again. We love the pace of development, what small teams can do when they work quickly. So that's what we set off to do again. Very nice. Thanks for the intro. And before we get into what you're doing today, or what you've been doing with Funcraft the past four years, question of interest for myself as well, because I'm always fascinated working a lot with other entrepreneurs, you know, where building a game studio is a risky venture. As you share about the journey at Juicebox with the same co-founder. And I was curious, looking back, okay, if you can remember that far, of course, what was the feeling after you closed the company and why you didn't start a company right away? You could have started Funcraft. Was there a conscious choice of not doing it? And what were the key learnings or kind of the things that didn't go so well for you that you maybe needed time to digest? The first question, what we did after it and what the feeling was, it was a bad feeling. It was not, <laughs> it's not good. We both needed to lick our wounds for a while, Jason and myself. Clearly you failed. Of course you learn and there's great learnings and you have all that, but absolutely your goal of setting up a company that can continue to operate a sustaining company what did not work out and that was a failure and and that's not totally pleasant to have to tell the whole team of people hey we don't have jobs anymore that wasn't great at the same time there also was a little bit of a sliver of for me where it felt like almost a freedom and i was like wait a minute it wasn't that bad the company went out of business but it's like nice to have such a big failure and to realize that it's still okay after it, that it's fine. It's actually normal and expected. So that was somewhat freeing to have that. It's kind of sad these days. I'm also in contact with studios closing and what you say, like sometimes you lick the ones. And we talked about the griefing process. Does that resonate with you? There's something you invested your heart, your time, everything, and then it didn't work out. How did you use that time? Did you jump straight to EA or did you have some time in between? <laughs> I'm just laughing because when it happened, before I started EA, I was talking to my wife and I was like, hey, I'm going to take a few months off to really digest this and to figure out my next steps. She was like, what are you talking about? Get a job. Take this job and start it. Because you have not been making very much money for the last three and a half years at Juicebox. We'll start working immediately. Like, what do you, you don't need to find yourself or go on a journey, but I, it was a bit of a process. I didn't take, I think there was just like two weeks off between the final oh, wow. box and then starting at Electronic Arts. Absolutely. There were some moments of reflection and putting it aside. It definitely needed to do that. And I'm sure you had, like you said, many learnings. There are so many in building something and also closing something. Uh, not that it's desired, but that's kind of part of the journey. You have the co-founders building companies together in series because it's like not giving up on the first try and trying again. Uh, looking back, how you started Funcraft uh, later on. Uh, I don't know if you can think of like the three main learnings that you took away with you or the things that you should not be doing based on the learnings? What were they? First, I just want to talk a bit about how the transition that Jason and I started to work together again. So we took some time apart as well, because I think even, even between us, when the company was failing and failed, nothing was working. So it, it was tense between us as well. And 
Then after about a year, we met up and got together for drinks and we're talking for a while. And then maybe six months later, he reached out and he was like, Hey, I think I'm ready to do it again. And I was, I was not in that mind space. I was like, what are you talking about? No, I'm not doing it again (laughs) away. I was still in the honeymoon phase at electronic arts. It felt like, so it, it took a while for me to get there as well. And then it was this mutual, we kind of both had to talk to each other and say, I'm ready. You're not. Okay. I'm ready. You're not. I'm getting wife <laughs> for them. But the end, we hyped each other up a bit and we said, okay, let's do this. Let's make this happen. But definitely some of the learnings that we had from Juicebox that we've really applied. One is this idea of betting the company on each game launch is not a healthy place, not a great place. I feel like as you're building a studio and as you're building a team and you're building all this tech, like there's so much value in what you have. And I really think most things fail, unfortunately, that hard reality, like most things will fail. So you just want to find that failure as quickly as possible and realize that what you're building is that machine that can produce more things. So in our next approach, we didn't want to make a huge big game that it's like, this is our game. It's going to work or it's not. We want to be able to work on games. So that was one. Another big learning was just in terms of some of the people that we hire. And I think we got caught up a little bit in, in our first startup with Jukebox playing the game of, oh, how many people do you have? And thinking that that's a marker of success when in reality, it's just like, what is your output or do you have the right people? And I think we are shockingly scrappy and maybe somewhat embarrassingly so if I talk to some other companies, but that's been part of our success. And I think that approach has been really helpful. Back on the topic of teams, numbers, staff, because it's a whole philosophy by itself, how you're hiring and for which phase, you know, have you hired the same people that you had at Juicebox or like started from scratch and then let's go out there and see what we can get for what we need to produce. Like you talked about multiple games and I think here is really let's bet on multiple shots and not just that single big shot cannonball basically. Yeah, exactly. We have started from scratch with this, but then some of our earliest hires were people that Jason had worked with most recently, but we did start from scratch with this too. All right. I think it's something that we don't have so much visibility on when we see on paper. I'm looking at it from an investor side as well. I was involved in the early stages as well, the growth of your company. We look at, wow, great, a team of co-founders who worked together before and they want to work together again. And what you shared actually today is like, well, it's not that straightforward, right? It's, it's a journey. You have to grieve, you have to get over the, the breakup, <laughs> which is basically what it is and, and learn, mature and, you know, it's basically grief. And I think this is important to acknowledge as well, because those things don't appear on the deck. You know, it looks like it's a straight line. They were working greatly together and they built the second company. You know, it's not something visible. Yeah, it's a process. Absolutely. The, always the story of like a overnight success that took 10 years. It just feels like we're grinding and it all feels like a continuation of what we started early on. Absolutely. Yes. So as you started the company, you started with that vision. I will read it here for our audience as well. Making casual forever games that are daily rituals in our players' lives. 
How did you start the company? Did you start with that vision very clear or it crystallized over time or you wanted to build that engine of launching games trying? With which step did you try at first? It's clear on the website, but we're really focused on word games right now and daily ritual word games is what we call it. That has been over the last year and a half that we clarified our focus on word games. But it started from this idea of smaller games, like what games are quicker to make and core concepts that are straightforward, that have lower design risk as well. And the idea of how can we plus up these games by adding more live ops, more social. I was really inspired by Wordscapes and Toon Blast. Their simplicity of taking this game and, and making it so straightforward, especially how Pete changed the progression system of games, just this giant play now button, I think is really magical. So looking for games in the store that were doing solid, but not great business. And one in particular that I saw was Solitaire Grand Harvest, which of course I forget who bought them, but Playrix or something like that. So it turns out that it's not as humble as I thought it was. But it just had this like beautiful, beautiful, steady, steady growth in a short amount of time with such a simple game. And we were trying to find those diamonds in the rough. Yeah. So it's important here to look back at the context of a casual market. So 2018, 2019. I remember at the time as well, I joined Voodoo, kind of with the same thinking and observation. It was quite saturated. In those very sophisticated, elaborated games, you know, where you have a whole package and it takes three years of production, you never see the end of it. And by the time you're out, you see your CPI is just not making it. So I could see as well a trend more with hyper-casual where they were really pure, a pure form of a core gameplay, but you can still have the depth. I was really interested in exploring that further. You mentioned your references. Were there competitors who were really like taking the space? Like Wordscape is definitely one, but what was the context of marketability at the time as you were testing? Because right now it's not the same, right? I remember it was more opportunistic in 2019 where you could still have CPI less than $1 at small scale. I don't know if it's still the case today, but so what was the context? We weren't as sophisticated there as we are now. When we first raised our funds, we had this idea of going after multiple games and we actually found some outsourcers to help accelerate getting those games out the door. So some of our early games, we actually made a tri-peak solitaire game. And once that came out and it's like beautifully polished, it has this great IP of great characters. But then when it came out and it wasn't working well, it's just like, oh my gosh, we're competing against play ricks. Like what a mistake on my side to think that we could go into this competitive market without all of our effort, we kind of were throwing spaghetti on the wall with that game and you're not going to succeed that way. Some of the other games we made, we made this game Merge Kingdoms that this one actually was a little bit of a false path for us where it started to work out really well and the early ROAS payback was great, but then the even seven day retention taped and there was no more growth to it. But for a while it was featured by Google and that feature still somewhat mattered there. But we actually launched Wordgrams before it, which was the slow grower and Merge Kingdoms came out like a firecracker and did awesome. And we were like, oh, this is our game. We tried to work on it, but we just couldn't make the UA engine work for it. 
And then we looked back at WordGrams and we're like, wait a minute, this game is growing despite our lack of effort on it. And that really brought our switch back to it. Yeah, so that's your strategy that is really interesting because the big learning I get from working for a hyper-casual company is having multiple shots tested at once, right? You get insights really quick and you know what to pursue, where's the distraction. Like you said, like some games make it, it's hard to understand the complexity of the market. And then you just double down the efforts on the one that's working. So when you share those titles, which are in the same category, but quite different, like the solitaire, the merge, and then the word, were they tested at the same time? Or did you have a capacity for it, first of all? And second, and what it was the time or discipline you were giving to yourself or the hard gates? I don't know if you were working with system like that to say, let's stop investing in it and let's move on. Right. We like to have dates and we set goals for ourselves. I feel like you need to plant a flag and then maybe you miss it, but you need some flag there. And even in those early days, we were even smaller, so it was easier. We get them out there and then you learn about what you have to do and hopefully you're making it easier for the next time around. I mean, I remember one of the slides that we had in our first pitch deck was this idea of, okay, with each game, we're going to be stacking revenue. And then each new game we launch, we think and hope because we made it has the potential to be a massive game. And we hope that will be the one that grows like that. So that's very much with part of our pitch from the beginning. And I think the reality that we've seen is the games are either zero <laughs> or meaningful. There's not a middle ground for us. I mean, we launched one jigsaw puzzle game that I think has like less than a hundred installs or something. And it's just, oh my gosh, we bought some traffic for it. And the retention was so bad. And you're just, you know, immediately, like there's no way you can turn it into a business. And it sucks because you spent time on it. But those games, you just have to abandon really quickly. And that's okay. Yeah, I remember as well, um, in our studio, we were testing to market. When I say launch to market, it's like put something that is almost sometimes embarrassing, but I put casual mindset and you check the numbers, marketability. And I remember part of a conversation on the team level is like, when bad is too bad, like you give you example, this just bad, it's not worth the effort. And there's like, unsure, should we pursue the effort to try to not turn it around, but improve? Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So. How did you approach that of how many iterations you give to a product from the initial test? And is it more based on time, money spent on it, effort number of iteration, or a feeling what was your framework to make those decisions? Both on features and on games, we go through this process of, I mean, we're always evaluating what we think is the biggest impact now. Well, we always give ourselves the ability to reshuffle our priorities within reason. There have been a number of times during WordGram's first year where it was doing okay, but it would kind of plateau a little bit. And we would say, all right, maybe this isn't the game. Let's work on another one. And then we'd work on another game and that game would be even worse. And then we'd say, oh gosh, okay, let's go back to WordGram's. And with our tail between our legs, we'd say, WordGram's, we always loved you. We're here for you. <laughs> We'd try and grow it again and we'd, we'd grow it. And then we'd go through that same thing again when we'd hit a wall with WordGrams. We'd go try another game. And so that process has definitely happened a number of times with us. And 
we all want our games to be as good as Candy Crush or Royal Natch or Supercell game, but that's really, really hard to do. So it's like you have to invest in what you are capable of investing in and the best that your team is capable of doing. And for us, that's been word grounds. What has been really pleasing, especially recently over the last six months, is we've gotten to this point where all of those improvements across all the dimensions, the game itself, the data analyst, user acquisition, ad monetization, like improvements in each little piece are starting to stack up and the momentum seems to be building with it. Like we still are able to grow, even at that we're at the biggest volume we've ever been at, that we're growing at 10%, 20% a month sometimes. But I've followed the progression and growth of the product and given the context and the only thing you have control over is really growing your product, the performance of it, and you know, you do your best against the market. What I've seen, at least the successful products, there's a certain persistence in some direction and understanding really the audience, building with the audience. So you build like where you're best in your own category, right? Where you have an audience like into the social, I guess, and word core gameplay. But okay, this is a game I want to go to because it really gets me, you know? So finding that takes time and many trial and errors. Yeah. I mean, we started to grow this game and one of our original ideas was we wanted to go, when we started the company, is we want to go into areas that are not interesting enough yet for the big companies. But as we grow them, two to three years from now, we will make them interesting because they're not meaningful enough for big companies. And I think that's what's challenging as well. And I certainly experienced this at EA. Like, obviously, when you're at a bigger company, the bar for success is so high and it's so daunting of what you have to get to launch a new title to move the needle. And I'm sure you experienced this at Voodoo, where it's like the level of success that you need is really hard to get to out of the gates. Really, really hard. But when you see a game like Grand Solid Grand Harvest, like steadily grow there, it's possible. And that's what we're trying to do. I mean, I'm interested for you. I'm sure you've experienced that at Voodoo. I remember that it was like Plantopia. Yeah. And there was this good looking game and we would love that game. We would love to operate that game at Funcraft, or maybe it's just not at a great Voodoo level. Yeah, that was a thinking because the bar was higher at Voodoo with some hyper casual standards. It comes down to the payback window, right? And so when we had this conversation of Voodoo where, you know, in casual companies, they look at two, three years, like that started like to shock people. Like, wow, we look at it in weeks, you know, in hyper casual. I saw that payback window in hyper casual and it was crazy. So getting into casual for hyper casual company, already looking at eight, 10 months, he was feeling a little uncomfortable already. And for us, he was like, okay, do a boom, but it's a challenge. And the way we built the game initially was in the casual framework. And then when we tried to stretch it to fit like kind of a payback window, this is where it started like to stretch really too much. We acknowledge at the end of the day, even with my team, when we had to kill the product, we said, this is probably a game that many other companies would have loved to have and operate and grow because it was growing, but it's not the one for uh, Voodoo with the pace and the growth expected. And that made it kind of more acceptable for the team. Like we did well, but sometimes, you know, there are things like economical expectations that are out of your control, right? Depends on which environment you are. I will say this not in a reducing way, but smaller fishes makes totally sense for many startups that are more nimble, lean, have independence and freedom because 
The challenge of bigger companies these days is to launch products and innovate. And what happens in the ecosystem, as you have, may have seen, they acquire the companies who are capable of growing a product. So it makes a lot of sense as well. If you start a company independent, don't try to compete in the big pond with the big fish. You don't even have like the structure data. And this is something I wanted to ask. How do you operate your live games as you try multiple titles and also the growth and UA? Do you have this internally or do you work with a lot of you know, outsourcers or third-party services? So we're a very small team. We have 12 people full-time distributed around the world, four in the U.S., one in Canada, one in Spain, four in Argentina, and a few more around the world as well. Four engineers, so we're small, and we're able to do a lot. And I'm so pleased that we're able to do that with our team, and I think our team really enjoys it as well, how much control and independence they have. So the live operation that's had by our amazing head of product and they're just great. I mean, we're running experiments all the time and their team just really does the work and they're all on top of it. And people are raising issues that they see, fixing things. I think everyone feels a lot of ownership. So I'm so grateful for the team that we have. It's impressive, especially, you know, we've talked about size. I remember when you run a live game, the reality, especially I have been at Rovio as well, I saw that the teams at Uga grow quickly to 30 people and you're still 12 and you're operating a game that is growing really well, World Grams and also other games. Like I will talk a bit about those, I would say, sister titles, maybe like where, which are extension of your main title and distributed. My first question with the team, and it's more about team culture here, I find it really hard when a team is invested in a product. Like kill the game that you're attached to, you put some efforts, you believe, and then moving on to the next thing because you have shared, you kill a few titles. Sometimes you leave aside world grams and come back to it and try something new. How do you have a team that can follow that and adjust to this quickly, I guess, without getting emotionally attached to one game, which I find it really hard. Yeah, I think it comes to the people that we have are pretty senior and have been in the industry for a while. One of the core values is listen and this idea that you listen to the data and listen to the players. And if something goes wrong with a game or a feature, we want to try it. But if it doesn't work out, we listen to that and we don't argue with it or feel bad about it. It's just like, okay, cool. We learned that. We found that out and we do move on. So I think it's really important to have thick skin and not take it personally. There's this idea of focus and how valuable that is, of course, with all companies and teams. And we try to keep ourselves focused, but we still make mistakes. Like early on, we got the Hello Kitty license. Wow. Hilariously, when we got the paperwork, there was another game studio listed. So they're just giving it to everyone. <laughs> it wasn't like we were that special, but we made a Hello Kitty game. And then we had a second game that maybe we were going to make. And we were trying to get it out the door the second game, even though we had somewhat low expectations. And then Sanrio told us no. And I was so relieved that they said no for us rather than us have to work on this. It probably would have been another four months. It's an engineer's time dragging his attention, just taking a little bit of mind space from everyone. So I think it was so good to focus, but it's really hard to do as well. Really, really hard. 
when you're working on features or working on setting the priorities as the head of the studio. But I think that's super powerful. What I admire indeed is like the discipline of focus, because this is when you have a sign of initial success, it's easy to get distracted by, okay, let's build the next things without taking care of building sustainably your product to grow. Because the real game of growth and revenues is how you operate your game. Like launch is just the beginning, to be honest. And I understand by your different tries, WorldGrams was the one to begin with and to grow. What has your strategy become like now as a company, as you see, okay, that one is working and how does this affect the direction of your new games as you explore other titles? For a year and a half, we've been focused on word games now, and we've tried a couple of other word games that have not worked. There was a solo version. There was another crossword style game that did not work. And those were disappointing to us. At the same time, we were able to take components of those games and put them inside of WordGrams and have them be really successful features. So that was really nice for that engineer and the UI designer working on it, where it's like, okay, we had this thing where it didn't work as a standalone product, but it's actually part of WordGram success. We want to keep bringing new features and new game modes into WordGrams to give players more to do, but we are trying new games. And what we think has worked for us is this idea of we really like turn-based games in the word genre. And our fans of ad modernization have been able to make that work and we're continuing to grow that and flex that muscle. So we think the turn-based is really nice because it gives a really natural play for the player for an ad to appear. So we have a, more games in that path on that roadmap. I think one of the nice things is both on feature development and, and game development, but always being in a place where we have more things to try, where if one doesn't work out, it's like, okay, cool, we know what to do next. We're going to try something else. Whereas I think at the end of Juicebox and at the end of EA, after launching Command & Conquer Rivals, it was like, that didn't work out. We thought it would work out. I don't know what to do next. We just did this for a year and a half or three years at EA, made this giant game and it didn't work out. What could we do next? And that's kind of a natural breaking point. You always want to have something, okay, we're, this is next and this is next, more ideas. And then the latest game is Word Yahtzee. One of our engineers built that within two months. We had it in the App Store, which we're really pleased with. He was able to do that because of all of our investment into repeatable tech. And that game is slow and steady. It's been a roller coaster with that game as well. Been out for three months, soft launch. But we're starting to see metrics that are as good as or better than Wordgrams. So we're really excited. It's like, oh my goodness, we might actually have something here. That's, yeah. that's great. We're really pleased with that. There are a few things I saved in the way you have approached, which is just quite close to my thinking in terms of product strategy approach. What you're building through the test is more an engine of learnings and tech to launch more effectively and also put your efforts more into what works because you understand what works over time, right? With experiments. And do I understand correctly that you have started to create more inside knowledge in how you operate a word game, like social word game? And is this a competitive advantage for you? Do you see that for your company today? Yeah, absolutely. I think so. I mean, this idea, a lot of times you read about it, that investors want a team or a company that knows a lot about a genre. Makes a lot of sense. It's been easier to do for us 
because we've had success with workgrams already. I think when you don't have success in something, it's hard to keep going after that same thing. So it feels really good and natural for us where it's like, okay, we have something that's working well and will continue to grow to keep refining in that. Whereas I think otherwise it does feel tempting to be like, ah, that word gate didn't work. Let's try a MOBA. And then it's like, what's well, the Don't do that. Don't do that. We go all over the place. But it's so natural to pursue problems or pursue spaces or genres that you have a superficial level understanding of because it seems very easy. You don't know all the hard problems. Whereas when you're in a project or you're in something, you know how challenging every piece is. So it can feel like that knowledge makes it harder to invest more sometimes, but that's the valuable knowledge. That is what's valuable. Hmm. Especially given like, again, how hard it is to acquire. And it's, it's a knowledge on how you even approach performance marketing, right? Experiments, tests over time, creative and so on. I have learned that a lot as well. Back to you, like kind of a team more organization. How is it working for you to be distributed? And you, okay, most of you are in the North American time zone, America, but you have people in Europe. So how has it been working for you? How is it serving, like how you work? And are there some challenges with that setup or not? Yeah, definitely. So like most companies, obviously we were affected by the pandemic. I never would have thought this was possible prior to the pandemic. I never would have gone down this path. We started it about six months before and there were four of us when the pandemic started we went remote and we've stayed remote ever since i think it's been amazing the talent that we've been able to find it's been really great i find the people on our team that we're working with i love the international aspect of it it's like it's really fun to work with people all over the world I mean, it just it surprises me in a fun way where it's like, how did we get this group of people together? Nick in Canada and Maria in Spain and Ariel in Argentina, like how in the world did we get connected? How random it feels just delights me. Some of our people are at a different stage in life where they have young children. And I think that flexibility is something they absolutely enjoy and, and almost demand at this point. So it's been really good for us. There are challenges, absolutely. It's hard to have really creative conversations. Conversations, of course, are shorter if you can hold your phone and point to something or interact with it. Like, no question. We miss some of that. You can answer questions more quickly. I wish we could have whiteboarding sessions in a better way. There's been some times where I physically hold up a whiteboard to sketch things out and look like a maniac. Of course, there are some things you miss, but I think for the most part, it's shocking how effective it is for us. And we really like it. Mm. And it's great to see examples of when it works, you know, because I think it's a debate these days where even we think for ourselves in a studio, going back to work, is this the only way? I think it depends on what you're doing, how you're working, the people you're hiring, and the, again, the focus on the culture. So I like to uh, give cases, examples of not extremes, but, uh, you know, there's a place for everyone here. <laughs> And several ways of working. Yeah. Even for me personally, like there are things that I love about it personally and also things that I miss about it personally. I would love if we had an office 10 minutes away from me that we could go to and everyone would be there. That would be amazing. That would be so nice. Like I don't like working in this room all, all the time. It is, it's not great. 
I also think for people early in their careers, it would be really daunting and really challenging. I think that's a huge loss. Maybe they're okay with it. I think it's super valuable early in your career, of course, to be seeing all the conversations that happen and being aware of them or just seeing how people interact or talk or go in a room, being able to sit in and listen. That gets missed a lot, I'm sure. So I wish everyone lived 10 minutes for me and we had a great office, like the Savage office. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's the beauty of it, where you get to connect with people you would not be able to connect like in person, but with a limitation of how realistic where, you know, people live with their family and so on. So it's like, like a selfish desire. I would like everyone to live around me. So, you know, I could see people and, but uh, yeah, it's unfortunately not so realistic. And my last question, because it's an exciting phase with your new launch of games, what is your focus then going forward and the things you feel excited about like coming for your company? I think we're a really, really great place right now. I'm excited to wake up every day and, and check our numbers and, and talk. <laughs> Continued growth of Wordgrams. We think this game can continue to grow. We're seeing that accelerate. So we're super excited about that. And then we think our next title can be as big or bigger. What's nice about it is the numbers are good and there's so many more optimizations that we have to do. So given all that we've learned in WordGram, all of these systems, all of these features, we're going to try them all in this new game. And not all of them will work because the game's a little bit different, but a lot of them will. So that's super exciting. And then there's other games in our roadmap. Like we have other ideas that are just sitting there on a list to make. So we think we want to get, get to them. Of course, we can still get better user acquisition, more creative testing. We want to get better there. So definitely if people have listened this far and you're interested in helping us grow as a user acquisition manager, please reach out. We need some help there. We're getting to capacity. So that's the challenge for us to make these things smoother, more repeatable process. I make sure to pass the word. I think this is definitely a game of UA and performance marketing, which is with the whole privacy change and so on has become harder. But you are in a good side of a problem where you have a game that is also very accessible and where you don't have to go in crazy hardcore targeting and also like relying on ad monetization, which is closer also a bit to a bit casual, but yeah, a different conversation, CPMs and yeah, I've been also in that, in this conversation is like, wow, everything looks so dark in the future. But like we said, like product growth is the thing that you have at the end of the day and audience really engage in your game. This has value and this will survive the turbulence of the market. Well, thanks a lot, Michael, for the conversation today. I, I feel excitement personally listening to you because I'm not working closely to a product these days, but having this conversation like kind of ignites again my, you know, my product mind. And so I, I feel your excitement and I feel excited about your future, your, your growth and your, your games. They're super cool. I like the focus as well on the, the word categories or what I, I would call like more like light casual games, you know, but with a depth. So good luck with the growth and I'll pass the word as well to friends in UA to help you grow. Any last words? It was so nice to talk. Really fun conversation. Gets me excited too about what we're up to. And just, I mean, I, I love the gaming industry. It's so great. I love it. Yeah, we are very fortunate to work with passion and business. It's a rare thing to have in the work. Well, thanks, Michael, and take care. Thanks for listening to this latest episode of the Rise and Play podcast. 
I am trying to grow a community of conscious leaders across the industry and beyond. So if you want to join this movement, please share the podcast with other conscious leaders because we have so much more we can learn from each other. Also, please don't forget to follow the show so you don't miss out on future content. Every episode is packed with actionable insights that will help you improve your leadership skills now. And if you are interested in learning more on the topics that we discussed today, you can find more insights on riseandplay.io and there you will also find my free masterclass on conscious leadership. So have a great week and until the next time, 